Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep. Knackles by Donald E. Westlake. This is first published in Fantasy and Science Fiction in uh, the January 1964 issue, so it came out late 1963, uh, Christmas issue for 1963. Um, It's attributed to Kurt Clark, C-U-R-T-C-L-A-R-K, but that was Westlake's pseudonym. Um, And uh, it is a terrific story uh, suitable for Christmas and children. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to read it for us, Eric, and then uh, maybe we can discuss uh, its dire implications. Okay. <laughs> Did God create men, or does man create gods? I don't know. And if it hadn't been for my rotten brother-in-law, the question would never have come up. My late brother-in-law, Knackles knows. It all depends, you see, like, like the chicken and the egg on which came first. Did God exist before man first thought of him, or didn't he? If not, if man creates his gods, then it follows that man must create the devils, too. Nearly every god, you know, has his corresponding devil, good and evil. The polytheistic ancients, prolific in the creation of gods and goddesses, always worked up nearly enough evil ones to cancel out the good, but not quite. The Greeks, those incredible supermen, combined good and evil in each of their gods. In Zoroaster, Ahura, Mazda, being good is ranged forever against the evil one, Ahriman, and we ourselves know God and Satan. But, of course, it's entirely possible I have nothing to worry about. It all depends on whether Santa Claus is or is not a god. He certainly seems like a god. Consider, he is omniscient. He knows every action of every child for good or evil, at least on Christmas Eve. He is omnipresent everywhere at once. He administers justice tempered with mercy. He is superhuman or at least non-human, though conceived of as having a human shape. He is aided by a core of assistants who do not have completely human shapes. He rewards good and punishes evil. And most important, he is believed in utterly by several million people, most of them under the age of 10. Is there any qualification for godhood that Santa Claus does not possess? And even the non-believers give him lip service. He has surely taken over Christmas. His effigy is everywhere. But where are the manger and the Christ child? Retired rather forlornly to the nave. Santa's power is growing, too. Slowly but surely he is usurping Hanukkah as well. Santa Claus is a god. He's no less a god than Ahura Mazda or Odin or Zeus. Think of the white beard. The chariot pulled through the air by a breed of animal which doesn't ordinarily fly. The prayers, requests for gifts which are annually mailed to him and which so baffle the post office, the specially garbed priests in all the department stores. And don't gods reflect their creator's society? The Greeks had a huntress goddess and and gods of agriculture and war and love. What else would we have but a god of giving, of merchandising, and of consumption? Secondary gods of earlier times have been stout, 
but surely Santa Claus is the first fat primary God. And wherever there is a God, mustn't there sooner or later be a devil? Which brings me back to my brother-in-law, who's to blame for whatever happens now. My brother-in-law, Frank, is, um, or was, a very mean and nasty man. Why I ever let him marry my sister, I'll never know. Why Susie wanted to marry him is an even greater mystery. I could just shrug and say, love is blind, I suppose. But that wouldn't explain how she fell in love with him in the first place. Frank is, Frank was, I just don't know what tense to use. The present, hopefully. Frank is a very handsome man in his way, big and brawny, full of vitality, a football player, hero in college, and defensive linebacker for three years in pro ball till he did some sort of irreparable damage to his left knee, which gave him a limp and forced him to find some other way to make a living. Ex-football players tend to become insurance salesmen. I don't know why. Frank followed the form and became an insurance salesman. Because Susie was then a secretary for the same company, they soon became acquainted. Was Susie dazzled by the ex-hero, so big and handsome? She's never been the type to dazzle easily, but we can never fully know what goes inside the mind of another human being. For whatever reason, she decided she was in love with him. So they were married, and five weeks later, he gave her her first black eye. And the last... Though it mightn't have been since Susie tried to keep me from finding out. I was to go over for dinner that night, but at 11 in the morning she called the auto showroom where I work to tell me she had a headache and we'd have to postpone the dinner. But she sounded so upset that I knew immediately something was wrong, so I took a demonstration car and drove over, and when she opened the front door, there was the shiner. I got the story out of her slowly in fits and starts. Frank, it seemed, had a terrible temper. She wanted to excuse him because he was forced to be an insurance salesman when he really wanted to be out there on the gridiron again. But I want to be president, and I'm an automobile salesman, and I don't go around giving women black eyes. So I decided it was up to me to let Frank know he wasn't to vent his peak on my sister anymore. Unfortunately, I am 5 feet 7 inches tall and weigh 134 pounds with the Sunday Times under my arm. Were I just to give Frank a piece of my mind, he'd surely give me a black eye to go with my sisters. Therefore, that afternoon, I bought a regulation baseball bat and carried it with me when I went to see Frank that night. He opened the door and snarled, What do you want? In answer, I poked him with the end of the bat just above the belt to knock the wind out of him. Then, having unethically gained the upper hand, I clouded him five or six times more and then stood over him to say, the next time you hit my sister, I won't let you off so easy. After which I took Susie home to my place for dinner. And after which I was Frank's best friend. People like that are so impossible to understand. Until the baseball bat episode, Frank had nothing for me but undisguised contempt. But once I'd knocked the stuffings out of him, he was my comrade for life. And I'm sure it was sincere. He would have given me the shirt off his back had I wanted it, which I didn't. 
Also, by the way, he never hit Susie again. He still had the bad temper, but he took it out in throwing furniture out windows or punching dents in walls or going downtown to start a brawl in some bar. I offered to train him out of maltreating the house and furniture as I had trained him out of maltreating his wife. But Susie said no, that Frank had to let off steam and it would be worse if he was forced to bottle it all up inside him. So the baseball bat remained in retirement. Then came the children, three of them in as many years. Frank Jr. came first, and then Linda Joyce, and finally Stuart. Susie had held the forlorn hope that fatherhood would settle Frank to some extent, but quite the reverse was true. Shrieking babies, smelly diapers, disrupted sleep, and distracted wives are trials and tribulations to any man, but to Frank, they were, like everything else in his life, the last straw. He became, in a word, worse. Susie restrained him, I don't know how often, from doing some severe damage to a squalling infant. And as the children grew toward the age of reason, Frank's expressed attitude toward them was that their best move would be to find a way to become invisible. The children, of course, didn't like him very much. But then, who did? Last Christmas was when it started. Junior was six then, and Linda Joyce five, and Stuart four, so all were old enough to have heard of Santa Claus and still young enough to believe in him. Along around October, when the Christmas season was beginning, Frank began to use Santa Claus's displeasure as a weapon to keep the children in line, his phrase for keeping them mute and immobile and terrified. Many parents, of course, try to enforce obedience the same way. If you're bad, Santa Claus won't bring you any presents. Which, all things considered, is a negative and passive sort of punishment. Wishy-washy in comparison with fire and brimstone and such. In the old days, Santa Claus would treat bad children a bit more scornfully, leaving a lump of coal in their stockings in lieu of presents. But I suppose the Depression helped to change that. There are times and situations when a lump of coal is nothing to sneer at. In any case, an absence of presence was too weak a punishment for Frank's purposes, so last Christmas time, he invented Knackles. Who is Knackles? Knackles is to Santa Claus what Satan is to God, what Araman is to Ahura Mazda, what the North Wind is to the South Wind. Knackles is the new evil. I think Frank really enjoyed creating Knackles. He gave so much thought to the details of him. According to Frank, and as I remember it, this is Knackles. Very, very tall and very, very thin. Dressed all in black with a gaunt gray face and deep black eyes. He travels through an intricate series of tunnels under the earth in a black chariot on rails, pulled by an octet of dead white goats. And what does Knackles do? Knackles lives on the flesh of little boys and girls. This is what Frank was telling his children. Can you believe it? Knackles roams back and forth under the earth in his dark tunnels, darker than subway tunnels, pulled by the eight dead white goats, and he searches for little boys and girls to stuff into his big black sack and carry away and eat. 
But Santa Claus won't let him have good boys and girls. Santa Claus is stronger than Knackles and keeps a protective shield around little children. So Knackles can't get at them. But when little children are bad, it hurts Santa Claus and weakens the shield Santa Claus has placed around them. And if they keep on being bad, pretty soon there's no shield left at all. And on Christmas Eve, instead of Santa Claus coming down out of the sky with his bag of presents, Knackles comes up out of the ground with his bag of emptiness and stuffs the bad children in and whisks them away to his dark tunnels and the eight dead white goats. Frank was proud of his invention, actually proud of it. He not only used knackles to threaten his children every time they had the temerity to come within range of his vision, he also spread the story around to others. He told me and his neighbors and people in bars and people he went to see in his job as insurance salesman. I don't know how many people he told about knackles, though I would guess it was well over 100. And there's more than one Frank in this world. He told me from time to time of a client or neighbor or bar crony who had heard the story of Knackles and then said, by God, that's great. That's what I've been needing to keep my brats in line. Thus, Knackles was created and thus Knackles was promulgated. And would any of the unfortunate children thus introduced to Knackles believe in this evil being any less than they believed in Santa Claus? Of course not. This all happened, as I say. Last Christmas time, Frank invented Knackles, used him to further intimidate his already intimidated children and spread the story of him to everyone he met. On Christmas Day last year, I'm sure there was more than one child in this town who was relieved and somewhat surprised to awaken the same as usual in his own trundle bed and to find the presence downstairs beneath the tree, proving that Knackles had been kept away yet another year. Knackles lay dormant, so far as Frank was concerned, from December 25th of last year until this October. Then, with the sights and sounds of Christmas again in the land, back came Knackles, as fresh and vicious as ever. Don't expect me to stop him, Frank would shout, when he comes out... When he comes up out of the ground the night before Christmas to carry you away in his bag, don't expect any help from me. It was worse this year than last. Frank wasn't doing as well financially as he expected. And then early in November, Susie discovered she was pregnant again. And what with one thing and another, Frank was headed for a real peak of ill temper. He screamed to the children constantly, and the name of Knackles was never far from his tongue. Susie did what she could do to counteract Frank's bad influence, but he wouldn't let her do much. All through November and December, he was home more and more of the time because the Christmas season is the wrong time to sell insurance anyway, and also because he was hating the job more every day and thus giving it less of his time. The more he hated the job, the worse his temper became, then the more he drank and the worse his limp got, and the louder were his shouts and the more violent his references to knackles. It just built and built and built and reached its crescendo on Christmas Eve when some small or imagined infraction of one of the children, Stuart, I think, resulted in Frank's pulling all the Christmas presents from all the closets and stowing them all in the car to be taken back to the stores. Because this Christmas, for sure, it wouldn't be Santa Claus who would be visiting this house. It would be Knackles. 
By the time Susie got the children to bed, everyone in the house was a nervous wreck. The children were too frightened to sleep, and Susie was too unnerved herself to be of much help in soothing them. Frank, who had taken to drinking at home lately, had locked himself in the bedroom with a bottle. It was nearly 11 o'clock before Susie got the children all quieted down, and then she went out to the car and brought all the presents back in and ranged them under the tree. Then, not wanting to see or hear her husband anymore that night, he was like a big spoiled child throwing a tantrum, she herself went to sleep on the living room sofa. Frank Jr. awoke her in the morning crying, Look, Mama, Knuckles didn't come. He didn't come. And pointed to the presents she'd placed under the tree. The other two children came down shortly after, and Susie and the youngster sat on the floor and opened the presents, enjoying themselves as much as possible, but still with restraint. There were none of the usual squeals of childish pleasure. No one wanted Daddy to come storming downstairs in one of his rages. So the children contented themselves with ear-to-ear smiles and whispered exclamations. And after a while, Susie made breakfast, and the day carried along as pleasantly as could be expected under the circumstances. It was a little after 12 that Susie began to worry about Frank's non-appearance. She braved herself to go up and knock on the locked door and call his name, but she got no answer, not even the expected snarl. So just around one o'clock, she called me and I hurried on over. I rapped smartly on the bedroom door, got no answer, and finally I threatened to break the door in if Frank didn't open up. But I still got no answer. Break the door in, I did. And Frank, of course, was gone. The police say he ran away, deserted his family, primarily because of Susie's fourth pregnancy. They say he went out the window and dropped to the backyard so Susie wouldn't see him and try to stop him. And they say he didn't take the car because he was afraid Susie would hear him start the engine. That all sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Yet I just can't believe Frank would walk out on Susie without a lot of shouting about it first, nor that he would leave his car, which he was fonder of than his wife and children. But what's the alternative? There's only one I can think of. Knackles. I would rather not believe that. I would rather not believe that Frank, in inventing Knackles and spreading word of him, made him real. I would rather not believe that Knackles actually did visit my sister's house on Christmas Eve. But did he? If so, he couldn't have carried off any of the children for a more subdued and better behaved trio of youngsters you won't find anywhere. But Knackles being brand new and never having had a meal before would need somebody somebody to whom he was real, somebody not protected by the shield of Santa Claus. And as I say, Frank was drinking that night. Alcohol makes the brain believe in the existence of all sorts of things. Also, Frank was a spoiled child if there ever was one. There's no question but that Frank Jr. and Linda Joyce and Stewart believe in Knackles. And Frank spread the gospel of Knackles to others, some of whom spread it to their own children, and some of whom will spread the new evil to other parents. And ours is a mobile society with families constantly being transferred by daddy's company from one end of the country to another. So how long can it be before Knackles is a power not only in this one city, but all across the nation? I don't know if Knackles exists or will exist. All I know for sure 
is that there's suddenly a new level of meaning in the lyric of that popular Christmas song. You know the one I mean. You better watch out. I uh, I want to tell you a little story <laughs> about brother-in-laws. Um, this is a brother-in-law story. When uh, I first met my brother-in-law, <laughs> he didn't know me. And uh, I am being me, uh, playful and uh, maybe a bit mean. <laughs> we were at a barbecue celebrating the fact that my sister was going to get married. And I was talking to him and I was saying, yeah, you know, um, I hope this all works out because um, if not, uh, I'm going to have to bury you in the backyard just like I did all her previous. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and he had no idea if I was joking or not. And, of course, that was why it was so funny to me. He, I don't think, I still think he doesn't like me based on the fact that I was making such a... Scary joke. Um, you know, and, we've known each other a long time. <laughs> I never knew your middle name was Knackles. <laughs> well, I, I had read this story prior. Um, I, f I first found this story in a collection of uh, a very s all too small collection of the complete uh, science fiction of uh, Donald Westlake called Tomorrow's Crimes. And uh, it, it struck me as important. Um, it it is kind of like a joke in a certain sense, but he is actually doing some really interesting things. And in just like the last couple of days, I started thinking about why this story is being told to us, um, you know, sort of the meta aspect of it. And one of the things it, it kind of reminds me of is that story I just told you, because it basically Frank's gone. He's out of the picture. Uh, our narrator, the brother-in-law of Frank, says, you know, I'm not sure where he is. I hope he's alive. But um, that's sort of like the story I told to my brother-in-law, my soon-to-be brother-in-law, which was, you know, I really hope this works out. <laughs> because I don't want to end up burying you in the backyard. Uh, <laughs> the the there there's almost like a a threat involved here that it's as like could this uh, one way of reading the story up to a certain point is that this is uh the narrator explaining to the cops that yeah I, it wasn't me I didn't kill him and he admits to having assaulted his brother-in-law after and for good reason but that's it's still a crime whether it's good reason or not um this guy's frank is an abuser right he he hit his wife. He uh, uh, throws furniture out the window. He's always making drama. And then when he has kids, he's like uh, mental, mentally abusing the children. It's almost better that Frank is gone because we don't know what's going to happen. This marriage is in terrible condition. But more importantly, he's hurting children. And we don't want that. So if we put ourselves in the narrator's position... It is a good thing, in a certain sense, that the brother's gone. On the other hand, our narrator, we don't really know anything about his life. We don't know if he has his own kids. He never mentions it. We don't know his name. Um, we know he works as a car salesman. Um, and I note, and I think it's very important uh, for my studies of Westlake, that Westlake here uh, makes the bad guy 
an insurance salesman because it comes up again and again in, in Westlake stories. Insurance is a serious problem. So at the end of the, at the end of the day, I don't think we can say that this is a story being told to the police to explain why I'm not a suspect because he mentions the police say they have this theory. So he obviously did talk to the cops, but that being the case, who is he talking to? Who is he telling this story to? If he wants to prevent the spread of the story of Knackles, he's not doing a very good job by having it published in, in a magazine. If, on the other hand, he's trying to make sure whoever becomes the stepdad to his nephews and nieces, this story might serve as illuminating. What do you think about that? I, it was interesting to me... Um... To, to listen to your um, picking up crumbs, following the trail, heading off toward this is, as for example, um, Pose the Black Cat. Mm. Um, the, the narrator trying to exonerate himself by talking to the police. Right. Um, and then as you continue to pick up breadcrumbs, deciding that, nope, that's not the path at all. Right. And coming back to where you started. So you started, you, you came back and picked up your own brother-in-law story. Mm -hmm. And you're wondering, hmm, is this supposed to get people uh, to, to, to shape up? And I think, I think in a way it is, but I think for me, it's a philosophical story. Sure. That has two, I, I, it, it two different related subjects. One of those related subjects is what is a god? Uh huh. Is a god just? I mean, is is a god just a group hunch? But because the group hunch is sufficiently strong, things happen in the world. Um, you know, and and if there is such a thing as a god, is there inherently an evil? Right? So there's this philosophical question: What makes a god? Is a god just a fiction, or is it in fact a functional fiction? And and so on. And is it possible for an evil person to create something that helps, in fact, supplement and make more significant a god? So that's interesting theological or I shouldn't say that because that supposes there is a God. <laughs> it's an interesting ontological question. What is the nature of the being of a God? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a nice story for that. There's another one, however, which is a psychological philosophical story. Do we who create evil inherently create the instruments of our own demise? Is someone who is a wife abuser necessarily going to have an unhappy life because an abused wife can't possibly give that person real happiness? Is someone who threatens other people constantly going to feel that the world doesn't treat him right because, after all, if it did, he wouldn't be having to threaten people? Is Knackles, in effect, Frank's punishment from the very inception. And in that case, the question is not the ontological one about what's the nature of a god, but the epistemological one. What is the, the nature of knowledge? Is it just something that we have on a shelf in a library? 
or is it something that informs our very souls? I think the questions, these are two really potent questions and interesting ones to sit around the fire and discuss at Christmas. Mm -hmm. Christmas is a time traditionally for ghost stories. Yeah. And this fits right into that tradition. You know, like the turn of the screw, for instance, Mm -hmm. is a quite famous one. And, and, and yet you've got to admire and not yet. I mean, you've got to admire Westlake. He takes what could be viewed as a long joke. Mm -hmm. He takes what some particularly Christians might view as, um, a blasphemous series of comparisons Mm -hmm. And he winds up leaving us with something that neither asserts nor denies the existence of God or evil, but asks us to engage in profound questions about it, about both of them. I think that this is a story worth worth rereading, mm-hmm. and I, I'd like to do it particularly at Christmas time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I made a note on uh, page 98 of the PDF. Um, that's the uh, third page of the PDF, but the 98 from the magazine. Um, after he lays it out, he lays it all out. You know, Santa Claus is a god. He states it, and then he proves it. And then he lays out the case for, like, what else could we have had but a god of giving, of merchandising, and of consumption, right? <laughs> I mean, it, literally, that's sort of the story of Santa Claus. One of my friends, Mr. Jim Moon, has been doing very amazing research into the origins and the development of Santa Claus over the planet over the last 200 years. And he has grown in stature in the same way as is depicted here. It absolutely makes sense that he is a god. We don't think of him that way, but how he has more believers than many religions, right? Now that granted they're all young. Um, but he, uh, my note is he really makes a compelling case and that being the case, um, the, this spread of the story of Knackles, which takes place over the period of a year or so, right? Uh, it, other people, other jerks in bars are picking this up and saying, yeah, that's what I need to keep my kids in line. It's like, oh my God. Yeah. And there actually is, um, they're on the internet. There's another anti-Santa Claus um, somebody picked up. Uh, I think it was like from Denmark or something. And they make a big case about, you know, it being a way to keep kids in line. I can't remember the name of the other anti-Santa Claus. But, man, I think Knackles is a powerful idea that could take hold. And it's almost scary that it's being placed here. And maybe it's a good thing that this story isn't better known because it it is abusive to to say, you know, to kids, you better be good or else. Well, that's kind of mean. And as Westlake puts it, you know, kind of um, not that bad to be denied something that is a bonus, but to say that you're going to be eaten eaten up and taken away in a big bag of emptiness and there's nothing I can do to stop it. In fact, I think it's deserved – what a monster! That's psychological abuse. So, um, <laughs> I think it, I think it is a powerful story, and it really does speak to, uh, you know, questioning our assumptions. It, I, I, I'm go, sorry. No, go for it. 
as with so many things that are are fantastic, the the trope allows us to look at something which we see in our real lives, but made more dramatic. Yep. I mean, Frank is is vicious. I mean, I think there are people like him in the world. Sure. But there are many, many more people who would say to their child, you are crying about that? I'll give you something to cry about. Right. Or would say, don't look at me like that. What happens if your face freezes like that? Mm-hmm. Or if you don't want to eat your vegetables, you're getting no dessert. Mm-hmm. Or say that to me again. And you can't watch any TV tonight. Yep. The number of people who will, in fact, threaten children is large. And this is just giving us a sense, pursuing those other things, of, well, wait a minute. What am I creating that is evil in the world and what might that do to me? Um, Because this is how I'm treating the least among them. Um, Then there is also, and I'm sure Mr. Jim Moon knows this well, there is the critique of capitalism here. Mm -hmm. Once upon a time, before uh, the night before Christmas was published and became such a famous poem about that jolly old elf, Mm -hmm. if you look at earlier popular culture illustrations of Santa Claus, he's slender. Mm -hmm. He is not a fat old guy. He becomes a fat old guy as he moves into merchandising. Mm -hmm. His girth is itself an example of the adaptation of a myth to the cultural needs. And that particular adaptation is one which is looked on as jolly in the poem because, after all, at a holiday you can indulge yourself. But the culture does not look on that particular feature as inherently positive. In fact, the opposite. You know, the sizeism is a real thing. Um, Santa Claus escapes it because he's nice to kids. Knackles is thin. He needs to consume. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. This is really a, a, a story that is both universal in the sense of addressing philosophical and ontological questions and culturally pointed in addressing parenting and capitalism in America in the 60s and maybe to some extent today, which is why this lovely little joke gives us always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember... You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.